Well, tonight I want to wrap up our series on the Ten Commandments, and I want to do that by taking us to the New Testament, and particularly the Gospel of Mark. And so take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at one of the most well-known passages in the New Testament that I think is really the Spirit-inspired summary or conclusion to any series on the Ten Commandments. And it's Mark chapter 12, verse 30, excuse me, verse 28. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. And this is what, uh, how, how Mark records this particular event. Of the scri- one of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, Jesus, that being, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Father, we thank you for your word and I pray as we tackle this Um, epic text, Lord, that we're all familiar with. Um, We've all heard preached before, I'm sure, and uh, we may not hear anything new tonight that we've already heard in the past, but I pray that your spirit would uh, minister to us through uh, his word, and uh, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts, challenge our hearts, and Lord, if there may be one person here tonight who, who is yet to truly commit their life to follow and obey Jesus Christ, that tonight, Lord, you would open their eyes, grant them understanding, grant them repentance and faith. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you remember, I began our series on the Ten Commandments asking how many of you could list the Ten Commandments in their proper order. You remember that? Who was here for that? Uh, Not many hands went up. Um, Many of you, by your own admission, struggled to even recite them all of them, uh, let alone in the right order. And then I posed the obvious question, how can you keep the Ten Commandments if you don't even know the Ten Commandments? And furthermore, how can you know them if you can't find them? If you wanted to find the Ten Commandments, where would you go? Exodus chapter 20. And also Deuteronomy chapter 5 is the other reference Well, I trust by now that you know where the Ten Commandments are, but more importantly, you have them memorized, not so you can say them and impress one another, but so that you can obey them. And I want to conclude our series tonight by summarizing and and hopefully simplifying everything that we've covered so far uh, in the Ten Commandments. I mean, there's been a lot 
to take in over these last several months. I was so encouraged just this Sunday to meet a new couple that's just started coming to our church, and, and uh, the gentleman just said, hey, I want you to know how encouraged we are uh, in just a, f- a few months we've been coming. And uh, in fact, we've been listening to the Ten Commandments series online, and uh, it has been profound. It's been very helpful, and uh, it was so encouraging to know that um, even if you all fell asleep, right, and didn't get anything out of it on Wednesday nights because we're all tired, somebody is benefiting it from, from it online, which is uh, just a huge blessing. And so this passage that we have before us, I think, again, as I mentioned earlier, is the Spirit-inspired summary or simplification, if you will, uh, of the Ten Commandments. And here, God himself, in the human form of Jesus Christ, condensed the Ten Commandments down to one overarching, all-encompassing commandment. And it's referred to in the Gospels as the great commandment, the foremost commandment, the first commandment. In other words, the Ten Commandments, as well as all the other commands in Scripture, can be boiled down into one simple, basic command, and that is love God and love others. Love God and love others. It's really two commands in one that both have to do with the same thing. When it's all said and done, the Ten Commandments are all about one thing, and that is not obedience, but love. The Ten Commandments are all about love. And we have said over and over again that really you can divide the Ten Commandments into two sections. Remember what they are? How would you break them down? The first four are all about how we express love for God. And the last six are all about how we express love for other people. And so you've got the vertical relationship expressed in one through four, our relationship with God, and you've got the horizontal relationships, right, our, our, our relationships with our fellow man uh, described in, uh, in, in six, uh, or excuse me, five through, five through ten. And, and so when it comes down to it, life could be summarized as loving God and loving others. That's life. Loving God and others. That's why we're here. That's what all of us should be doing. This is how God intended us to live, loving him and loving others. Let's close in prayer. I mean, seriously, that's as simple as life gets. What is life all about? It's all about loving God and loving other people. And so Jesus couldn't have made this any clearer in his response to the very difficult question posed to him by a scribe. And and just to give you the context here, because we're just parachuting down here in the middle of Jesus' life and ministry here, but this was the last week of his life, this was the last week of his ministry, and uh, it was shortly after the triumphal entry where he cleansed the temple uh, of the greedy money changers and he began teaching And the Jewish religious leaders felt threatened by the powerful influence that his teaching had over the Jewish people. And so they they stepped up their efforts to arrest him and to kill him. And so what we see going on here in Mark chapter 12 is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians all sent delegates to try to trip Jesus up with some difficult question or to trap him in something he said. So everyone's taken their best shot at him. 
The Pharisees and Herodians asked him whether or not it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. We see that in verses 13 through 17. And of course, Jesus answered, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and God the things that are God's. And then the Sadducees come along and they ask him whether or not there was life after death. And they told this ridiculous, uh, hypothetical story about this, this uh, woman, right, that was married uh, seven times. And, uh, and, and, and he wanted to know, she, 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 was, she was married basically to seven brothers. Um, uh, so when it came to the resurrection, who was she married to? I'm trying to paint Jesus into the corner, if you will. And Jesus said, hey, that's, that's a silly question. There is no marriage in heaven. Kind of shut that down. And then a scribe comes along and asks Jesus what was the most important commandment. Now, scribes were the experts in the law. Their specialty was interpreting the law and explaining the law, the Mosaic law in particular, the Ten Commandments. We know from Matthew's gospel that this scribe was also a Pharisee. And so most likely he was the most learned, astute expert on rabbinical law in the ranks. Like this was the smarty pants of the Pharisees. And, and most, uh, they, they, they probably thought if, if there's anyone who would be a match for Jesus, it was this guy. And so they sent him to ask Jesus to clarify one of the most debated issues among the Pharisees. The Pharisees used to talk about these things all the time. Uh, the reason is because they had established uh, a list of 613 commandments for the Jews to follow. And one, one for every letter in the Ten Commandments. Like the Ten Commandments weren't enough. So we're going to come up with a commandment for every letter in the Ten Commandments. All the verses that we studied. Uh, Total that up in the Hebrew and there's 613 letters. And so they divided these 613 commands into 248 affirmative commands. One for every part of the body. And 365 negative commands, one for every day of the year. Can you imagine that? And, and these two broad categories were divided further into two other categories. And in, in were, there was heavy laws and there was light laws. And the weightier laws were more binding than the lighter laws. The problem was the scribes and the Pharisees couldn't agree on which commands qualified as a weighty command or qualified as a light command. And so they literally spent countless hours debating the merits of their man-made divisions and categories, and yet they never were able to reach any kind of consensus. And one of their favorite exercises was discussing which one of the commandments was the greatest. Out of all these commandments, which one is the greatest? And why is it the greatest? And, and, and determining a creative way to, to summarize the whole law in a, in a single unifying command. Several famous rabbis tried to do this with varying degrees of success. In fact, the most notable example is that of Rabbi Hillel, who lived around the time of Christ. And this is what he said. This was his summary statement. What is hateful to thyself, do not do to thy neighbor. This is the whole law. The rest is commentary. That was his stab at summarizing, unifying uh, all the commands in Scripture and so this scribe wanted Jesus to weigh in on this debate. 
and, and really take a stab at what, what seemed to be this elusive goal to summarize all of God's commandments. Verse 28, one of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he'd answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Well, Jesus just cut right through all the trivial, fanciful, legalistic, hair-splitting that they were so used to as Pharisees, and he provided a very simple yet profound answer to the scribe's question. He said this, The foremost is, verse 29, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so when Jesus was asked that question, the first thing that came to his mind is the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Turn back there just for a moment. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. And of course, Deuteronomy uh, means second law. This was when Moses was repeating the law, reiterating the law to the new generation of Israelites who uh, were about to enter the promised land. And this is what he said, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Again, that's what's referred to as the Shema. And even today, every Orthodox Jew recites the Shema every morning, every evening, uh, it's the opening line of every synagogue worship service. It's worn by every pious Jew uh, in their phylacteries that are strapped on their foreheads and, 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 and on their forearms when they're praying. It's attached to their doorways in what's called a, a mezuzah. If you've ever been to a Jewish home, they might have this little, little uh, capsule on the, on the doorpost, uh, and that's an application of, of this uh, principle in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, a misguided application, mind you, because I don't think God actually intended them to write it on their doorposts, literally. He's meant to be constantly talking about him and his commands all day, every day, inside, outside, when you're going through the door, when you're going out the door, uh, all the time. What's, what's the point here, though? Back in Mark chapter 12, the Lord expects us to have more than just warm, fuzzy thoughts and feelings about him. That's not what God expects of us. He demands total 100% allegiance. He expects us to, to wholeheartedly commit our entire life to him. And that's why Jesus mentioned here four different parts of our lives to express this comprehensive commitment that he wants from us. He mentioned our what? Our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. In other words, he wants us to love him with everything that is within us. He wants us to love him emotionally, volitionally, intellectually, and physically. And he's essentially here insisting that we show him the same kind of self-sacrificing love that he showed us by denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following him. And by the way, he has every right to make this absolute claim on our lives. Someone said it this way, God wants all of us all the time. God wants all of us 
all the time. Not just part of us some of the time. That's typically what most of our lives are like. He's got part of us some of the time. Or maybe he's got most of us most of the time. But that's not good enough. He wants all of us all the time. Well, Jesus expanded his answer to also include Leviticus 19.8, where God commanded through Moses that the Israelites love their neighbor as themselves. You can see that back in Leviticus 19.18. In other words, when he said here, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you can see it's a quote there from the Old Testament. What he's saying is you need to treat other people with the same care and concern that you show yourself. Paul picked up on this in Ephesians chapter 5 when he was talking to husbands about loving their wives as their own, what, you remember? Their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one even ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. So Paul's appealing to the fact that he knows that, that, that men love themselves. And, and, and they cherish themselves and they feed themselves and, and, and they love themselves. And, and listen, if, you, if you're hurting your wife, you're only hurting yourself. The point is this, when we're hungry, what do we do? We feed ourselves. When we're thirsty, what do we do? We get ourselves a drink. When we're sick, what do we do? We go to the doctor, we take medicine, we take care of ourselves. Why? Because we're all totally committed to taking care of ourselves. Aren't you? I, I am. Now, some say that in order to love others, we need to learn to love ourselves first. Have you heard that? It's a very common um, thinking or philosophy and unfortunately becoming a theology in the church. It's the self-esteem theology. And, and so people say, well, you know, in order to, to love others like yourself, you need to learn to love yourself. And so let me slip in there some self-esteem junk. Well, that's not even there. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Christ's command here clearly assumes that you already love yourself. In fact, the problem is you love yourself too much. You don't lack self-esteem. That's really pride in disguise is what that is. We usually love ourselves more than anyone else. And so what Jesus is saying here is we need to learn to love others like we already love ourselves. Romans chapter 13, Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Listen to what Paul said. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. In other words, if you love your neighbor, if you love Others, you have fulfilled the law. You have obeyed the law. And then he quotes from the Ten Commandments. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. If you fulfill these two commands, to love God and to love others, guess what? You will fulfill the rest of, all the rest of God's commands. So you're like, well, there's just a lot of commands in Scripture, and how am I supposed to get my mind around them and remember them all? Hey, you don't have to remember them all, just remember two. 
Just remember, you've got to love God and love others. And if you're doing that, then you're going to be obeying all the other commands. Because if we, if we truly love our neighbor as ourselves, we'll never do anything to what? To harm them. Do you harm yourself? No. Why would you harm someone else? We'll never dishonor them. We'll never murder them. We'll never commit adultery with their spouse. We'll never steal from them. We'll never slander them. We'll never covet their stuff. That's the last six commandments right there. Covered. In fact, you're saying, man, this is good because now I don't have to memorize all those things. I could have a hard time memorizing them all and keeping them all straight. Well, forget about it. Just remember, love God and love others. First four is loving God. Last six is loving others. See, if you truly love God, you'll never do anything to hurt God. You'll never love anyone or anything more than him. You'll have no other gods before him. You'll never make an idol. you never worship an idol. You'll never use his name in vain. You won't disregard his day, the Lord's day, if you truly love him. And so we have this upward aspect of love and this outward aspect of love, and they're inseparable. They really go hand in hand. They're like two sides of the same coin. You can't love people unless you love God, and you don't love God unless you love people. That's what John said in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Don't tell me you love God if you hate your brother. You're lying. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. You can't have one without the other. You can't just love God and not others, and you can't just love others and not God. You've got to love God and love others all at the same time. Now back to Mark 12. Notice how the scribe responds. Verse 32, the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, You have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all your heart, all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Hopefully that little phrase, all burnt offerings and sacrifices, rings some Old Testament bells. And I'm going to read some texts from the Old Testament in just a second. But the, the point is that the scribe was very impressed with Jesus' brilliant answer. He was, in essence, saying, that's beautiful, that's excellent. But he was also impacted by it. And I believe that he's acknowledging here that, that loving God and others was far more important than offering burnt sacrifices. And remember, this guy's a, a Pharisee. He's a Jewish religious leader, and it was all about what? Offering sacrifices. And so he knew that all these outward rituals and and ceremonies of the Jewish religious system were were merely symbolic of this inward relationship and commitment uh, that God desired to have with his people. And yet the focus of of the group that he ran with, the Pharisees, um, was was all about keeping a bunch of rules and regulations and doing a bunch of good work which only served to feed their self-righteousness. 
They, they faithfully recited the Shema on a daily basis, but it really meant nothing to them. It was, it was meaningless. It was hollow. It was shallow. They honored God with their, what, lips, but their heart was, what, far from it. They cared more about what they looked like on the outside than what was really going on on the inside. They were hypocrites. They were hypocrites. And, and you know Jesus took no prisoners when he talked about hypocrisy, and he, he just hit these guys head on. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 5, we have these, these, um, th- this Phariseeism exposed. In, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 1, then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. In other words, they're in the place of Moses, where Moses was in the Old Testament, acting as the, the mouthpiece for God among the people of Israel. He was their leader. Now, this is the role that the scribes and the Pharisees are serving or filling. He says, and and listen, listen to what they say, but don't do what they do because they don't do what they say. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. He goes on to say, don't call them rabbi. And then he goes on in verses 13 uh, all the way through uh, really uh, verse 36, uh, describing the, the eight woes, it's called. The eight, the eight woes of hypocrisy. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Verse 13, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Verse 16, woe to you, blind guides. He picks it up again in verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And he goes on and on and again. All the things that they said and did made it look like they really loved God. I mean, on the outside, you just looked at a Pharisee, you looked at a scribe, and, and they, they sure looked like they loved God. I mean, if you've ever been to Israel uh, and you go to the Wailing Wall, which is probably the most iconic place, the, the one picture we always see when the news goes to Israel and it's the Wailing Wall and you see all of those Orthodox Jews and they're dressed in black with their long, you know, their, their long uh, sideburns and they're standing in front of the Wailing Wall doing this. I mean, they look like they love God. In fact, I was personally, last time we went, last May, uh, convicted as I went out there with a couple of guys from our church, and I just, we just stood out there and watched them one evening, praying and reading their, their Hebrew Bibles and, 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 and genuflecting like they do. And, and, and I thought, it dawned on me, I thought, these guys are having their quiet time. This is to them their quiet time. And look at how energetic, look at how passionate, look at how zealous, um, physically even involved they are. And I'm you know, dozing off during my quiet time. And so while, while there's zeal, it's zeal without knowledge, right? It's all external. 
Uh, and, and, and so what Jesus is saying about these, these scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23 is that they had no true love for him or for others in their hearts. And the point is that God is not interested in external religious rituals. He desires to have a personal relationship with each of us that is expressed by genuine love and obedience. And these are some of the Old Testament verses that maybe came to your mind when you heard me read here what the scribe said, that loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. You remember what Samuel said to Saul when he was supposed to destroy the Amalekites. And uh, he ran out to Samuel and said, I did exactly what you told me to do. I did exactly what God told me to do. And he says, well, what is this bleeding of sheep? Oh, that, that's the soldiers. They, they thought that it would be a good idea to keep some of the sheep and, and we're going to offer them as sacrifices to thank God for our victory. And Samuel's like, seriously, is that what God said? No, you disobeyed. And so he says this in 1 Samuel 15, 22, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. It would have been better if you had just obeyed. That would have been an offering of worship that was enough and it was acceptable to God. Psalm 40, verse 6, sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. In other words, when it all comes down to it, what you prefer uh, beyond the sacrifices and all the offerings is that I would just obey. And really, the sacrificial system was just a, a symbol of their obedience, that I'm obeying you. I'm doing what you said. I'm, uh, you set up a system for me to, to make atonement for my sin, and so I'm obeying you, and I'm doing what you're telling me to do. And so what, 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 God looked past the, the sights and the sounds and the smells and the bells and all that stuff that was going on in the Jewish religious system that he himself instituted, the sacrificial system, and he looked past all that to see what? A loving, obedient heart. That's what he was looking for. Psalm 51, verse 16. This is David in that classic psalm when he was repenting and confessing his sin of adultery and murder. He says, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Again, you bringing your little pigeon, you bringing your, your, your little lamb, your, your, your ox, uh, your cow, whatever it was you were bringing as a sacrifice to the Lord, that's not really what he desired as much as that was a representation that you were coming with a broken and contrite heart. And so apparently this scribe was connecting the dots here. And, and notice how Jesus responded, when, verse 34, when Jesus saw that he'd answered intelligently, in other words, this guy knows his Old Testament. He knows the Bible. He, he, he gets it. He sees the connection. He says, when he saw he'd answered intelligently, he said to them, you are not far from the kingdom of God. In other words, you're, you're this close to getting saved. 
to repenting of your self-righteous system, works-based religion, and coming to, fit by, coming to, 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 to faith in me. And so Jesus not only commended this guy for his insight, but he challenged him to love and obey him as his personal Lord and Savior. Here was a man who was no longer trying to defend the party line. But I think he was honestly evaluating the truthfulness of what Jesus was saying here. And the light was beginning to to come on in his heart. And and Jesus knew he was close to, to, to getting saved. He was not far from entering the kingdom, as he said. If you remember uh, back in Mark chapter 1, the very first words that Mark recorded um, that Jesus spoke in his gospel was this, quote, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. And here he comes in this interaction with the scribe following up on that call Uh, that the kingdom of God is at hand, he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And so I think Jesus was encouraging this this scribe to repent of his external religion with all its rituals and duties and to stop seeking to earn his salvation by keeping a bunch of rules and, and regulations, but instead to trust him and submit to him and follow him and obey him as the king who alone could grant him entrance into the kingdom. We're all familiar with the classic statement that Jesus made in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And what did he say about the Pharisees? Man, they're yoking you up with this heavy burden that they can't even carry. And they're trying to make you carry it. The system of self-righteous earning your way to heaven, earning favor with God by your good works. I mean, no man can live under that weight. And he says, come to me. You're, you're tired, you're, you're, you're weighed down trying to earn your way to heaven. And, and listen, come to me, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your soul. Stop striving, in other words, to save yourself and trust me for your salvation. A.W. Pink has said this about obedience. He says, what is obedience to God? It is far more than a mechanical performance of certain duties. Obedience is not only subjection to an external law, but it is the surrendering of my will to the authority of another. Thus, obedience to God is the heart's recognition of his lordship, of his right to command and my duty to comply. It is complete subjection of the soul to the blessed yoke of Christ. It's a profound definition of obedience. The complete subjection of the soul to the blessed yoke of Christ. And so the distinguishing mark of of, of a true Christian, a true believer, is love for God. If you're a true Christian, you love God. And, And love for God is best expressed by obedience to God. So if you're a true Christian, you love God. And the way that you express that love is you obey him. 
And this connection between loving God and and obeying God was originally established in the Ten Commandments. If you turn back to Exodus chapter 20, when he was describing this or giving the second commandment about having no other idols, he, he said this, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and what? Keep my commandments. He didn't just say, to all those who love me. He said, to all those who love me and keep my commandments. This principle was affirmed by Christ in the Gospel of John. We've been learning about that and also reaffirmed by John himself in his first letter to the churches. Just listen to a few references here. This is, these are the words of Jesus, John 14, 15. If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. John 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And then John gets into the act here, 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, love this. And by this we know that we've come to know him. You want to know if you're a Christian? You want to know if you're a true believer? This is how you know. If we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and doesn't keep his commandments, is a liar. Don't say you know Christ unless you obey Christ. The truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. In other words, that love that you claim to have for God is the real deal. And we know it's the real deal because you obey him. And then, of course, 1 John 5, 2 says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not a pain in the neck. That's my translation. His commandments are not burdensome. In other words, to a genuine believer, God's commandments are not a burden. They are a blessing. It's not like, oh man, I, I just, man, why do I, why do I have to do that? Why can't I do that? And just obeying the Bible and following the principles of God's word is just, you know, this is just chafing. It's just, it's this yoke. I wish I didn't have to bear it. And man, I just wish, right? It, it just becomes burdensome. Seriously, if that's your attitude towards the commands of scripture, then you're not saved. I'm just saying, you're not saved. How can you be saved and say that you are burdened by the commands of Scripture. Now, I didn't say it's easy to obey. (laughs) That's obvious. It's not easy to obey. But at least there's a genuine desire to obey. And, And when you disobey, you hate it, and you seek forgiveness, and you seek to repent and change and get help and all those things. Listen to the psalmist, Psalm 119.97. Oh, how I love thy law. Not only do I love you, God, but I love your law. I love your commands. Psalm 119.127. I love thy commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. I love the Ten Commandments. They're more precious to me than all the money in the world. Psalm 119.174. Thy law is my delight. It makes me happy. 
I get so excited to obey your commands. Instead of saying, well, I wish, man, I wish I could do that, or man, why, do, why did he have to pro- prohibit us from doing that? It's kind of like when the first college I went to, it was called Word of Life Bible Institute, and, and it was a year of just intense studying of, of the Bible, and it was such an amazing experience for me. It really laid the foundation for, for who I am today, what I believe, and all that kind of stuff, and and I just, uh, you know, and part of the deal was it was, a, it was almost like a military school. Um, and so, you know, we had to wear ties to class. We had to actually wear a coat and tie to dinner every night. You couldn't go on a date alone. You had to take a third party. You couldn't walk on the grass. You couldn't have your hair touch your collar. You couldn't have any facial hair. There was a lot of restrictions, lots of rules and, and I just remember some of my dorm mates, you know, talking bad about the rules and and I'm like, seriously? It was your choice to come here, or maybe not, maybe your parents made you come here, but it was your choice to come here and you're telling me you're not blessed? Yeah, well, the rules may not be your preference, but look at what we're experiencing. Look what we're getting out of this thing. It's all in your perspective. Romans 7.22, this is what Paul said, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. And this was in Romans chapter 7 where he was battling his flesh and saying, man, I'm doing the things that I know I shouldn't do and I'm not doing the things I know I should do and it's frustrating. But in the inside, in the inner man, ultimately I concur with the law of God. In other words, I want to obey. Doesn't mean I always obey. I'm I'm struggling sometimes. I don't always obey, but I want to. I really want to obey. And who can deliver me from this body of flesh? Praise be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what's the point? This is what I'm trying to get across here. The ultimate evidence that you are truly saved is that you love God. And if you love God, you will naturally love his laws and you'll obey them. The only person who truly loves God is the person who obeys God. Not perfectly, but consistently. A.W. Pink, again, says this, not in the Old Testament, the Gospels or the Epistles, does God own anyone as a lover of him, save he who keeps his commandments. In other words, God's not buying it. You say, oh, I love you, God. He's not buying it unless you obey his commandments. Love is something more than a sentiment or emotion. It is a principle of action and it expresses itself in something more than honeyed expressions, namely by deeds which we please, by, by which we please the object loved. He said, oh my reader, you are deceiving yourself if you think you love God and yet have no desire and make no real effort to walk obediently before him. We would earnestly and lovingly beg the reader to attend closely to this detail. Any man who supposes that he's saved and yet has not genuine love for God's commandments is deceiving himself. Unless your heart delights in the law of God, there is something radically wrong with you. Yea, it is greatly to be feared that you are spiritually dead. 
Those are some strong words, but true words. Now, don't understand, excuse me, don't misunderstand what Pink was saying or what I'm saying tonight. We are not saved because we keep the Ten Commandments. We keep the Ten Commandments because we're saved. Is that clear? And as I mentioned at the beginning of this series, Exodus 20 makes it so clear that God presented the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel after they'd been redeemed from Egypt. He had rescued them out of Egypt because they kept the Ten Commandments. They were to keep them because he had taken them out of Egypt. And it's the same for us. God doesn't save us because we obey him. We obey him because he rescued us from death and hell. That's why we obey him. And so if you don't remember anything else from this series, please don't forget the primary purpose of the Ten Commandments. They are not to save us, but to show us that we need to be saved. When God gave them, when God gave these Ten Commandments, everyone had already broken them. And he knew they would continue to break them. In fact, I don't think God ever intended us to keep the Ten Commandments, but to show us simply that we couldn't keep them. Our inability to keep the law summarized in the Ten Commandments in this love God, love others, just our inability to do that makes it undeniably clear that we are guilty sinners who deserve nothing but the wrath of God. Furthermore, it exposes the the futility of, of trying to earn our salvation by our own good works and drives us to seek salvation through faith alone in Christ alone. That's what Paul said in In the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You can't get saved by keeping the law. All it does is it it, it shows you that you're a sinner. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And once we're justified by faith in Christ, Christ sends us back to the law, as a Puritan Samuel Bolton said, to find out what our duty is now that we're justified. He doesn't say, go keep the Ten Commandments for a while, and then I'll, I'll, I'll decide whether I'm, I'm going to save you. No, he's saying, hey, guess what? You've, you've tried to keep the Ten Commandments. You can't. That's why Jesus came, to do what you couldn't do. 
He kept them perfectly. And he died the death that you deserve to die. Come to me in faith. Accept my gift of salvation. I've done all that needs to be done through Christ. And once you come to faith in me, then I'm going to send you back to the law. And I'm going to say, now keep those. Keep those by the grace that I provide you in Christ and by the strength that I provide you by the Spirit. You keep those. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Ten Commandments go from being enemies that curse us and condemn us to hell to being our friends who care for us and compel us in our pursuit of holiness. Listen, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this series on the Ten Commandments has, been nothing, has done nothing but condemn you to hell, a confirm that you're going to hell. Because you're a sinner. That's what the law does. It exposes that you're a sinner. But if you're a Christian, you realize, wow, the, the, these, these, these commands are my friends. They care for me. They, they compel me in my pursuit of holiness. They're, they're this timeless, trustworthy map that lay out for, for me the way that God wants me to live my life. These are God's laws for life. Someone has written this I thought was very appropriate. He said this, The law was given to teach sinners their sin. When a sinner sees the law in all of its strictness and spirituality, he thereby comes to understand the spiritual bankruptcy and grave danger of his condition. The law, able to condemn but unable to save, sends the convicted sinner looking for salvation in the only place it can be found. It sends him to Jesus Christ, who in his perfect law-fulfilling life and perfect law-fulfilling death gave himself to redeem helpless sinners. When Christ receives repentant, believing men and women, he forgives them, he grants them his righteousness and gives them his spirit. He writes his law on their new hearts and empowers them to follow him in obedient discipleship as the one who perfectly kept the law himself he then leads his disciples to obey the commandments. And so Jesus is leading us as our Lord and Savior, our Master. Uh, he, he is leading us in obedience to the Ten Commandments. He's showing us how to do it, and he's empowering us to do it. Let me close, if I may, with just a, a picture, maybe that I could paint for you in your mind's eye that I think illustrates the Ten Commandments and their purpose and where Christ fits into all of this. Imagine yourself standing before God, the judge of all the earth, to have your life examined, and he calls the Ten Commandments to testify against you. You're there. You see yourself sitting in the, in, in the courtroom and he calls, God himself calls the, the Ten Commandments to testify against you. And one by one, they all take the witness stand and they bear testimony of how you have violated each one of them in your actions, in your words, and your thoughts. And so you have no other choice but to, to plead guilty and accept the punishment of death that you deserve. But just before the judge slams the gavel down, sentencing you to eternal damnation in hell, in walks one more witness. It's Jesus Christ. And he takes the witness stand, 
and he testifies that he did what you could have never done. That he perfect, perfectly obeyed the law. He, he never broke any of the Ten Commandments. And yet even though he is innocent of any sin, he expresses his desire to take the punishment for your sin and to die in your place so that you could be set free, so you could be released. And what's more, he asked the judge to wipe your record clean and treat you as if you've never done anything wrong. And so the judge agrees, and Jesus Christ is taken to the death chambers, and you're set free. Sound too good to be true? That is the incredible reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? I close in prayer. Because, again, I never know who's here and what's truly going on in anyone's heart, and only the Lord knows that. But there may be someone here tonight who, like the scribe that we met tonight, is, is not far from the kingdom. I mean, you're really close to coming to Christ. And I just want to challenge you, just like Jesus challenged the scribe, to repent of your sin and receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And it's, fat, it's, it's very simple. You can just pray simply a prayer like this. Lord, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I've broken your law countless times and I stand guilty before you. I deserve to die and go to hell. I know that. But I believe that Jesus Christ perfectly lived the life that I couldn't live and he willingly died in my place on the cross. And by faith, I gladly receive your free gift of salvation through Christ and I humbly submit my life to him tonight. And from this day forward, I wholeheartedly commit my entire life to love and obey Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. If that is your heart's cry tonight, then you'll be saved. And you can have the hope of heaven and the joy of forgiveness. Father, we thank you for the Ten Commandments. And while there are some in the church today who would say that we have no business studying the Ten Commandments, they don't apply to us, they, we shouldn't put this burden on anyone any longer because Christ fulfilled the law. We, we believe that, God. We know your word teaches that, but that doesn't mean the Ten Commandments are irrelevant to us as Christians. They're a beautiful, powerful way for us to express our love to Christ for our great salvation. And so I pray you'd help us to keep these commandments in perspective and we would never put ourselves back under them in order to earn favor with you and to earn our way to heaven, but Lord, they would just simply be a way that we can express how much we love you and how grateful we are for, for our salvation in Christ. We pray this in his name, amen. All right, well, I hope that was a helpful wrap-up tonight, looking at uh, Mark chapter 12.